What's he building in there? In addition to his work on the critically acclaimed Baltimore-based HBO series The Wire, Vincent Perenio worked as the production designer and art director for all of John Waters' films. A prodigy with paper mache, a nimble architect of waste, Vincent constructed the village of Mortville from desperate living almost entirely out of garbage, locally sourced decaying animals, and a three-story facade of plywood for Queen Carlotta's castle. He managed to turn the burnt shell of a mobile home into the cardboard kitsch trailer park fantasia of pink flamingos with a mere $100 budget. And he hid under the torn out springs of seat cushions to create the living furniture effect in Connie and Raymond Marble's saliva drenched living room. He would continue to prove himself a skilled architect of waste, designing the tacky French provincial decor of polyester, the teabagging gobo club and its fur lined stripper poles and pecker, and the penis shaped topiary bushes in Waters' most recent feature length film, A Dirty Shame. This capacity for world building, of making trash into treasure, is a pervasive and endearing principle of the Dreamlander's ethos. It takes a village of fools to raise the enfants terribles of tomorrow. Bless this mess, this motley crew with a blatant disregard for obtaining the proper permits. This scrappy and malodorous bunch of ne'er-do-wells that bedazzled the dung heap and paved the way for the perverts of posterity. How do the melodramas of Douglas Sirk, Macy's perfume ads, the true story of a renegade southern footstomper, and the rage of a lesbian stripper who performed a Zorro entice a semi-retired, formerly closeted matinee idol to appear in a John Waters picture? I encourage you to scratch and sniff to find out. You might catch a whiff of some sickeningly familiar aromas along the way, like the Elephant Queen Eureka O'Hara, I'm most known for my armpit farts, and the dinosaur porno starlet Willem Belli. You should have swallowed. Don't be afraid to really stick your nose where it doesn't belong. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones, and this is pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. Garbage is presented by Wussy Magazine in collaboration with OutTV and Double Scorpio. Whether devouring the peach in Call Me By Your Name or eating an ookie cookie in an overcrowded frat house fuck film, Double Scorpio is sure to whet your appetite for cinematic exploration and to give you room for seconds and thirds and fourths. Yummy in my tummy, Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage Episode 5 O.D.
Digitalland. Hello, moviegoers. I am Dr. Arnold Quackenshaw, and I am here to explain to you the wondrous screen gimmick, Odorama. Odorama will enable you, the viewer, to actually smell right from your movie seat some of life's most fragrant odors. The producers of this film have unselfishly spent untold millions of dollars to develop this startling process. And I, I have been locked away for many years in the laboratory, experimenting with this mind-boggling project. I would like to share with you some of my research. 1981's Polyester begins with this parody of The White Coder, a trend introduced in early pornographic films that provides a scientific or medical context to explicit sexual content in order to exploit a loophole in censorship regulations and to pass the movie off as educational. Polyester marked Waters' first overt flirtation with mainstream film, the first film in his catalog to secure an actual R rating instead of an X or simply unrated and the first film to operate on a $300,000 budget. Naturally, he pulled out all the stops and crafted a gimmick called Odorama, a stylistic tribute to his personal hero and early pioneer of the outlandish theater gimmick, William Castle. Coinciding with the burgeoning success of New Line Cinema and leveraging his perpetual notoriety, Waters was able to secure unforeseen funding for this homage to 1950s women's pictures, in particular the lavish melodramas of Douglas Sirk, which often featured unfulfilled suburban housewives in the midst of a midlife crisis, seeking sanctuary in the arms of a younger lover. Divine returns after her hiatus and desperate living to take on the role of one such woman, the long-suffering alcoholic matriarch Francine Fishpaw. Hello. Mrs. Fishpaw, this is Mr. Kirk, principal of Overly Junior High School. Hello, Mr. Kirk. Is Dexter ill today? Why, no, Mr. Kirk, Dexter's in school. I'm afraid he's not, Mrs. Fishpaw. Dexter's truancy problem is way out of hand. The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. Why, Mr. Kirk, I'm as upset as you to learn of Dexter's truancy. But surely expulsion is not the answer. I'm afraid expulsion is the only answer. It is the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane and hazards the safety of the other students. We have no choice. I'm sorry. Good day, Hello, Mrs. Mr. Kirk. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Waters deliberately cast Divine against type, subverting audience expectations of the Godzilla meets Elizabeth Taylor they had come to adore. He takes a similar route with Edith Massey as the lottery-winning, altruistic neo-debutante Cuddles Kovinsky. You're so cute when you get tipsy. Oh, Cuddles, I am an alcoholic. Well, you should get out more then, honey, and forget your silly-nilly problem. You gotta get me to the alcoholics meeting. I'll take you to your club meeting, Francine, but first, you're going shopping with me. I simply cannot stand another day undecided about my debutante gown. 
Francine has a highly developed sense of smell that is highlighted through Odorama, a scratch-and-sniff gimmick inspired by William Castle's 1960 film Scent of Mystery, which featured a device called Smellovision that would waft florid fragrances into theater screenings. Now, polyester is a departure because it's more of a commercial effort, isn't well, it? Well, yes, but I, was, I had made Midnight Moves, and they were successful, and I wanted to spread my cancer to, dip to a wider group of people. <laughs> you see, I wanted to, to spread my germs to suburbia. Now, what, you know, people would think you're just being flip here about that, but what exactly do you mean there? That's... Well, my germs, what I mean by that is my sense of humor, which I find humor in all the things that are terrible about America and things that people have anxiety about. But the first step of getting rid of anxiety is to laugh at it. So mm -hmm. I think they're very healthy movies. And this is, you can see Divine in this film play something completely different than this character. He's a put-upon housewife in this. Mm -hmm. The scene we're going to see is sort of like a deodorant commercial gone berserk. <laughs> okay. And just when America needs it most. Uh, tell us about the, the, the odorama. Well, odorama is a, it's the film that you can really smell. And when you go, come into the theater, you get these cards, and when a number appears on the screen and starts flashing, you scratch and sniff that number. <laughs> Would you like to try one? No, I don't. Uh... <laughs> I can give you a good one first. Or... No, that's all right. That's, uh, but that's, uh, I guess, part of the uh, fun of being there. Uh... <laughs> now, how do you come up with the... Uh, well, I guess, wh where do you find smells? I mean, how do you... Well, the 3M company had a library of smells. Oh, that's a... And uh, which I was quite happy when I heard, but they didn't have some of the smells that we wanted. But yeah. I couldn't tell them at the time because I hadn't made hairspray, so it wasn't safe to like me. Right, and. Right. Uh, so I told them I, we needed a million rotten eggs, and I really needed it for something else that smelled similar. <laughs> oh, I see. And then yeah. it just kind of... It was number two on the card. Right, right. Yeah. I had the pleasure of visiting the John Waters archives at Wesleyan University multiple times this past year. And there, amongst other myriad delights, I found a scrapbook containing a mood board for Odorama including a Macy's perfume ad that featured the ad copy, Try the Beautiful Scentsation. I also found a small piece of scratch-and-sniff pizza that still smelt like oregano and parmesan over 40 years later. In addition, there were journals containing rejected odorama fragrances such as angel dust and amyl nitrates, and newspaper clippings titled Atlanta's Foot Stomper known as Tennessee Heel, which informed the narrative arc of Francine's troubled son Dexter, who derived overwhelming erotic pleasure from stomping on women's feet in the grocery aisle. I found a vintage poster for polyester with the tagline, Just When You Thought It Was Safe to Breathe Again, featuring an upturned nose resembling a shark fin emerging from water, reminiscent of illustrations for avant-garde Polish films. Indeed, polyester had a warm reception at the Cannes Film Festival, where Waters would later serve on the jury alongside actress Jeanne Moreau in 1995. The following is an excerpt of a Criterion Collection essay on polyester by John Partridge from 2019. In the opening scene, the ostentatiously gliding steadicam moves through Francine's pastel-hued home bedecked in French provincial décor, arriving in a lavender and cream bedroom where she appears clad in white. Francine shimmies to hoist her white elastic girdle panties around her girth, depilates her face, carefully plucks her nose hair, and deodorizes her feet and underarms. Recalling the boudoirs, bedside tables, and ornate mirrored vanities of Cirque's All That Heaven Allows and Written on the Wind, and the languorous wandering of a negligee-clad La Liz in the opening of Butterfield 8, 
Waters flags private zones where women ponder the tensions between artifice, reality, and self-definition. Yet in Francine's inner sanctum, such references collide with the queered femininity of Divine's bodaciousness, one with all the busted girdle seams showing. She is simultaneously ideal and de-idealized, as Tab Hunter croons the title song, Polyester, This Is Your Life, Francine. Polyester, cheap, shiny, yet durable, both artificial and aspirational, symbol of the synthetic and the degraded, suggests the excesses and promises of the American good life under capitalism. It's plastic, both miracle and scourge. And what could be more excessive and synthetic than the conventional roles and positions available to those polyester queens, the tormented women of 50s women's films? Francine, ever the normal and the prude, is obscenity's unwitting victim, a blue nose besieged at every turn by her own family's shameless vulgarity, prisoner of its founding sins. This last sentiment reminds me of Justine, the 1791 novel by the infamous libertine the Marquis de Sade, where the titular protagonist is trapped in a prison of her own morality, stubbornly attached to the concept of virtue, falling prey to an unyielding cycle of exploitation by those surrounding her. Waters managed to coerce formerly closeted Hollywood matinee idol Tab Hunter to star as Divine's dubious love interest, Todd Tomorrow, and commissioned Debbie Harry and Chris Stein of pioneering new wave punk band Blondie to write the schmaltzy soap opera theme song. Emboldened by the positive reception for Polyester, Waters began to develop a long-awaited sequel to Pink Flamingos entitled Flamingos Forever. The synopsis read, The legendary Divine, affectionately known as the filthiest person alive, makes a triumphant return to Baltimore after a ten-year absence. Revered for her trash and glamour by fans throughout the world, she has decided in her newfound maturity to live in semi-retirement, surrounded by zombie groupie worship as she attempts to write her memoirs. With her are her loving family, Cotton too, her beautiful but vacant traveling companion, now a full-fledged voyeur, her hillbilly son Crackers too, who Divine recently married, and their blissfully happy child Dwayne, an eight-year-old crossdresser. The development of Flamingos Forever would stall indefinitely with the unfortunate passing of Edith Massey in 1984. Hi, everybody. My name is Edith Massey. Some of you might know me. I play in John Waters' films. Multiple Maniac, Pink Flamingo, and the new film, Female Trouble. When I was a teenager, I always wanted to play in the movies. So you might say I am one person who wished upon a star and got her wish. When I was in the orphanage, they taught me how to tap and sing. So now I like to keep in practice tapping cause sometimes I do a live stage act. Well, the orphanage put me out in a foster home to work and the people were so cruel to me, I couldn't take up my tap dancing no more. And the daughters, they treated me real mean. They had me doing a lot of work so that they could go out and have a good time. So I waited until I saw my chance and I ran away. You could see I was their Cinderella. Edith, must you always be in the way? Yes, you find a better time to do your chores. Look at this myth. Oh, if Daddy could only get us a real maid instead of 
foster children. You just have to pay your help these days if you want any respect. Now, Edith, you remove this mess. And don't forget to take out the garbage. I nearly collapsed from the odor. And I'd like a tepid bath when I return for supper. And Edith the grocer will be here shortly. His money is on the side table. Don't think it's for you. And Edith, do not make any plans for this evening, as I have scads of ironing that must be ready for tomorrow's debutante ball. Edith, I hope you don't think this, this is clean. You just have clean. to do it over again. What do you mean not clean? I worked all morning on this goddamn porch so you could go out with a bunch of Prince Charming. So you want your bath now? Oh my God! What is that? Ah! It would be seven years until John Waters made another film, focusing on literary pursuits in the meanwhile, such as 1981's Shock Value, a tasteful book about bad taste, which chronicled his upbringing and cinematic exploits up until publication. Of the book, Kenneth Anger, the occult queer filmmaker and author of the scandalous gossip anthology Hollywood Babylon, said, It put my hair up in curlers. No small feat from a man who reported on James Dean's alleged proclivity for being used as a human ashtray at gay S&M clubs by Marlon Brando. In 1986, John Waters published Crackpot, a collection of essays that addressed his various obsessions, ranging from actress Pia Zadora, his eternal love of Christmas, and his experiences growing up with the Buddy Dean show, much of which would become the backdrop for his international smash success, 1988's Hairspray. Before we tackle the massive cultural impact of that particular film, here is an iconic anti-smoking PSA that Waters created in 1982. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you that smoke anyway, it gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Now it's time for Cookie's Corner in which the poet Kay Gabriel invokes the renegade spirit of writer, actress, and dreamlander Cookie Mueller by reading from her recently reissued collection, Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black. It's Cookie's Corner. The following excerpt depicts Divine channeling hidden depths of maternal strength to remedy an unforeseen crisis. A funny thing happens in all car accidents. Time changes. Everything goes into exaggerated slow motion. It's so bizarre. Once I was in a really bad car accident with my parents when I was 14, and while the car was spinning slow and mom and dad were flying out the doors in quarter time, I was marveling at the eerie time phenomenon. It was only when the car came to a full stop that time sped up again and got normal. The same thing happened this day, except neither of us got hurt. When the VW bus came to a halt at its side and time got regular again, Divine and I found ourselves in the back of the bus. I was on top of Divine, the windows were flushed to the ground, and we were dazed when nothing was broken. The engine was still whirring away. You all right, Cookie? He asked me. Yeah, you? Yeah, but that was weird, like slow motion, he said, and crawled into the front and pushed open the passenger door that was now on top of the bus. Door works, he laughed. The windows didn't even break. I said, looking around and crawling out after him. 
We walked around the bus and stared at its belly. It looked fine. Nothing was falling off. It wasn't even scratched. You gotta call a tow truck, I said, but a phone was miles away and there weren't any cars coming along. Divine didn't say a word. He just picked up the bus, the whole thing, and stood it up back on its tires just like Superman-woman. I think I was just standing there with my mouth open. God, you're really strong, I said. I can't believe you just lifted this thing. I'm flabbergasted. You ought to go into wrestling or weightlifting or something. I couldn't get over it. Must have been adrenaline strength, he said, and he got back in the driver's seat. I'll get in. Are we going shopping or what? From that day on, I always felt really safe when I was with Divine. He wasn't afraid of anything. All aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. We are thrilled to engage with artists, performers, writers, and historians who are directly involved or have directly inherited John Waters' legacy of filth. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest this week, drag artist Eureka O'Hara. Eureka O'Hara has risen to international prominence as a two-time runner-up on RuPaul's Drag Race and is the co-host of We're Here on HBO. They are a fierce advocate for body positivity, and in 2020, alongside John Waters' mainstays Tracy Lords and Mink Stoll starred as The Matron, a role originated by Divine, in a Los Angeles revival of Tom Ian's Women Behind Bars. Please give a wet and wild welcome to Eureka O'Hara. Honestly, yeah, Ricky Lake, playing Tracy Turnblad was like that first representation of body positivity. Obviously she was picked on in school and she wanted to, she just wanted to dance, right? Um, and obviously, you know, it triumphs in the end and like owns this whole like roach motif with her outfit and like straightening hair, which wasn't the way to go back then. And, you know, showing a representation of equality when it comes to people of color and then also interracial couples. It just, it's a testament to every movie that he's ever done. There's always these like hidden gems of like social discomfort and you know um these really incredible teaching moments too of like this is how people really are in real life just um hyperbolized in these films with female trouble the idea of beauty being so important she she's murderous and she's evil and and then you have like these representations of establishment the owners of the salon that are like getting off on it the message that divine says in her show um where she's like who wants to die for art you know it's like one of my favorite lines because it's true people really do die for art you know what i mean it's like to get a chance to be yourself and to express yourself is equal to death like her shooting up with eyeliner because she wants to be beautiful and she, you know the obsession of makeup is like it's it's so beautiful and the end of that movie where um john davenport is getting electrocuted to death finally being served with the death penalty she goes um, right before she's making out with this girl and she, the girl's like john don't you understand you're about to die you're um this isn't a show this is real life and she goes darling my whole life is a show and i'm just like same um i watched another interview with john recently where he was like you know it's like um i did a lot of drugs and i did a lot of this and that he was like the only thing i wish i never would have done was touch cigarettes and i'm just like 
work. He's <laughs> like, I only regret one thing. He was like, smoking cigarettes. You know, there was something glamorous and sexy about Divine too that John helped create. And I think there's something like really beautiful and sexy about all of his films in general. There's just this level of confidence to the people that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, so that, you know, I did Women Behind Bars in Hollywood. It was just a dream come true and it was so fun and it was so awesome to work so closely with Tracy, especially she's such a professional, such a sweetheart. You know, and then Mink is hilarious. She has every story, you know, known to man about Divine and John and, you know, it was, and working side by side with those people in those breaks in between rehearsal and things like that were when we were having these full-on conversations and I got to kind of go back to when they were working on these projects with them and it was just incredible especially Mink she's such a storyteller she still has within her personality a piece of that rawness that that was from that time in her life so she's just so honest about how people acted, how they were, you know, then in Divine was so different in drag and like this huge person. And I relate with that, you know, when I'm not on, I'm very, you know, introverted in my ways and simple, but I'm country and I come from Tennessee. Obviously they, they're not as country as I am, but you know, I don't know. I relate with that. Cause you know, drag gives you the opportunity to like be everything that's like in there, but it's not really something you can push out and less in those moments. And it's a quite, it's quite a release, you know, of uh, some of the sweetest, like most gorgeous people I've ever met makes the craziest, bloodiest, most disgusting painted art. You know, and it's just interesting what's inside us all. The story that pops in my mind about Mink Stoll is there's a scene, um, she played the granny and the matron, and there's a scene where the matron kills granny. And um, I just remember, because, you know, there's just something about, you know, when you're acting in theater, sometimes you just get a little too into it. And poor thing, um, I think I about half choked her to death with my nightstick one day in the production. <laughs> she came, and I just didn't even realize that I was being as hard as I was, and I felt so bad. But, you know, I was just so into it that day. I think it was a dress rehearsal, thank God, not on actual performance stage. But honey, she came up out of that chair so quick. She was ready to fight somebody. I said, like, oh my God, Mink, I'm sorry. But <laughs> I was feeling it too much. She was like, I thought I was gonna fucking die. I was like, oh no. Oh my God, that would have been the headline. Like, Eureka in, in When Behind Bars Kills Me So um, in aggressive acting. So, um, so we had a couple of conversations uh, about me and my nightstick. So we had to like, take away the nightstick for that scene somehow. So we like fully choreographed it where I sat the nightstick down, then choked out Granny because for some reason, every time I had that stick in my hand, I wanted to really kill me spell by accident. So that was a thing, you know? So that was my, like, that's my kind of crazy story with me. So luckily she loved me anyway and forgives me for it. But um, yeah, and then Tracy, you know, Working with her was just so uh, dynamic and fun, but me and her every day uh, at rehearsals, there was this little Thai spot around the corner. So me and her would like go eat Thai food and like talk about everybody, you know, and like <laughs> discuss like who we thought was doing well and who wasn't and who we, you know what I mean? Because we were so passionate about the project. Um, plus, you know, we were just two chickens, honey, gabbing in the corner eating food, you know? So it was, I, I have to say, she's a really fun girl to like set and like talk the tea with. Careful with that nightstick, Eureka. Up next is Willem Belli. Willem is an actor, parody artist, 
podcaster, and drag queen that has a decidedly more ambivalent relationship with the Drag Race franchise. It is my pleasure to welcome aboard the Degenerate Express, the irresistibly filthy Willem. I think my first John Waters movie was probably Crybaby. Um, just because I was like a kid in the 80s. And uh, I just remember thinking like Hatchet Face was like the, the coolest character in the world. And uh, I, I wanted to be here for Halloween and I wasn't allowed. <laughs> and now if I go out as Hatchet Face to just be like, oh, you didn't dress up? The biggest drag queen movie star of, you know, the world up until now. I mean, I feel like that's divine. Right, still, I can't think of anybody else who's done as many like giant movies like Lust in the Dust and Hairspray and Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble and like all these iconic movies. I mean, I'm sure there, there's gotta be other drag queens but I can't think of anybody who's done, you know, RuPaul's, RuPaul's a performer but I wouldn't call her an actor or an actress. <laughs> and that's, that's no shade because anybody who watches AJ and the Queen would agree with me that that is a performance. It's not necessarily acting. Yeah, I mean, I was watching like, I think the the Brady Bunch uh, remake recently where she plays like the uh, guidance counselor and it's- See, that's schmacting. That was fine. It's when she tries to, you know, go beyond the breadth of her skill that it sometimes becomes um, inadvertent comedy. You know, it'd like, be interesting her, to see her do like a method acting or something. It'd be interesting to see her stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about your work in particular, I feel like you have like a subverted aesthetic of like standardized beauty in terms of like almost like what I was thinking when I was doing research and like watching like Iconic Justice and like kind of like brushing up with your work is like kind of like a malfunctioning fembot or something like that. And I think that feels like it's in dialogue with, with John Waters a lot. Yeah, I think there's always an element of a classic that he'll then like twist. Like he did, Hairspray was like a, you know, classic love story, but it was also not contingent on getting the guy. It was, it was kind of uh, Tracy finding herself and finding her own voice and then getting her mother to see that like she could be, um, a fully realized person without depending on a man or the approval of a man. Crybaby is the same thing. The gang swoops in and saves the male lead, right? That's how art can move forward is, um, you know, not everybody's gonna like it, but making people talk. And if they don't like it, that discourse can lead to like opening of minds and things like that. Um, and I think that the, the clash of those two things, John does better than anybody else. I've always said like I have to do this kind of stuff because if not I'd have to learn how to dance or actually like be a good entertainer so I kind of like the shock aspect I I did a performance that almost cost a bar their liquor license but um it was I did not a girl not yet a woman while I fisted Drew Peters and it was one of those things where everybody in the audience was just guffawed at this drag queen's like cojones to do this and I was just like it's art it's like it's a I'm on pitch and I'm doing this live and B, I have opera length latex gloves on. Like, this is like, this is gorgeous. Like take in the beauty and like, just because I'm doing something that some would consider filth or trash, that doesn't mean it is. Like the juxtaposition of like being an almost 40 year old man fisting someone while they're singing, not a girl, not yet a woman. It's like inadvert and me playing it straight the whole time. Like it's inadvert, it's comedy. 
And I think that um, trying to find new ways to make people laugh has always been like my go-to because I don't want to repeat things that other people have done. Like I love divine, but I don't want to eat dog shit, you know, it's been done. So I try to find other things to do. The butt chugging on stage is always funny because I have a song called Only Anally. And it's in this cartoon called Jizz and the Mammograms where this crazy, crazy guy named Evil Jeff, he actually edits on um, uh, Katya and Trixie's show and uh, creates a lot of really cool stuff over at World of Wonder. He, uh, he had the idea to do voiceover of Gem and the Holograms, but like dirty, filthy, like, oh my God, you're gonna get fucking abortion. Yeah, I need these stem cells. And that's Jem's voice in it. And Kimber's like, I don't really get an abortion. man, fucking abortion. And it's so funny. And he asked me to play a role in it. And the first thing that I could think is like, oh my God, this is like my favorite thing I've ever done. And there's a song called Only Anally where this character talks about only not drinking and they only butt chug. And so I, I did that on stage at Wigstock and it was literally requested by the Wigstock promoters that I do this and like create a shit portrait of Lady Bunny afterwards, like spin art. And it was kind of fun. And I, I like seeing that some people still embrace that wacky divine john waters aesthetic you know because a lot of places are like don't make a mess put down a tarp another facet of your work that feels very much in dialogue with with john waters is daytime trash television and like doing a spin on like you know like like maury or like you know like judge judy or like you know the court and like you know and also like kind of the parody of like the high court you know and like a send-up of that like can you tell me more about like uh, your persona as like a daytime uh courtroom judge lady yeah i kind of think that um <laughs> giving the most uh ridiculous person the power to adjudicate something could lead to a new way of looking at an an outcome and people people came to iconic justice with problems and i venture to say that i solved them cecil be demented melanie griffith in that is like a white limo what am i a coke dealer like there's just so many iconic things and it's just a send up on fame. And I think it, there are people like that. We know them in Hollywood and, you know, they're hidden behind publicists, but there are monsters here. I've worked with them. It's a real thing. And John is not afraid to go there and to make fun of them. I haven't gotten the honor to work with him yet, but um, Detox and I saw him in an airport, I think in Brussels or Antwerp, I forget which one. And he got on a, we were sitting and he got on a people mover going one way. So we ran to the other end of the people mover so we could get like a drive-by audience with him for a second. And we were like, oh my God, John, we're obsessed with you, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I know exactly who you two are. And then he kept moving. And it was like, it was like he twisted his pencil mustache without even twisting. It was, it was just such a moment where I was like, wow. I, that acknowledgement was really nice. I wrote it in my journal and like, who knows if he even knew us, but like you, when you see two out of drag drag queens together, you're like, oh, drag queens. And then you just assume they're in an airport. They must be on drag race. Um, but he was doing some conference over there, something he had said. And I was just, I was, I was glad to, to say I, I met one of my idols and it went, it went well. I think every drag queen owes a debt of, you know, a thank you to, John, because if he didn't bring Divine into the public light, I think drag would be a lot less accepted um, as early as it was. And sure, it's not all around accepted now. We still have people like trying to kill drag queens for reading in libraries to kids. But um, in the 80s, I think drag became cool 
a little bit because of John Waters and because of Divine and because of the things that he helped do. Next time on Pure Garbage, we will discover the differences between ratted, feathered, and quaffed hairdos. Visit the Hefty Hideaway and the Corny Collins Show. Flirt briefly with the bohemian lifestyle before getting sick on a roller coaster at Tilted Acres. We might even run into Hatchet Face if we're lucky. And Hatchet Face, oh honey, you're just like me. So hard you could have been eating nails for breakfast. That's the way a woman's got to be these days. Joining me will be legendary actress, recording artist, and original Dreamlander, Mink Stoll. Go home to your mother! Doesn't she ever want you? Tell her this isn't some communist daycare center! Tell your mother I hate her! Tell your mother I hate you! I'm your regional filth correspondent, and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones. And this has been pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. Hosted by Kamikaze Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors Out TV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure garbage.